6, but then we're going to be covering from 1 Chronicles 13. We'll read the whole chapter together. Beginning in verse 1, God's word says, David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in the land of, lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and Levites in the cities of the, that have pasture lands, that they may be gathered to us. Then let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. All the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of the people. So David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Lebo Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Bala, that is Kiriath-Jerim, that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio were driving the cart. And David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. And when they came to the threshing floor of Kedon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and the place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day, and, and he said, How can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark home into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of God remained with the household of Obed-Edom in his house three months. And the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that he had. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, holy, holy, holy is your name. You are seated upon the throne, high and lifted up. And Lord, for a sinner to come into the presence of one so holy, so, so potent, so mighty, so majestic, so sovereign, is to be extinguished. For we cannot stand it. We cannot bear the radiance of your glory, the purity and purifying power of your holiness. This morning, I pray that, Lord, you would expand our vision of who you are. That you, we would see you bigger than we've ever seen you to before. And we would realize your glory greater than we've ever realized it before. And that, Lord, you would arrest us with your holiness and draw us through your invitation, through Christ, to enjoy and fellowship with you in a way that we should never be able to do. But, God, you have made a way where there was no way. You have brought hope where there was no hope. You have brought life where there was only death. In fact, you have made a way in which we too can be holy. God, let us take pleasure in who you are. Let us take pleasure in your son. Through the spirit, help me preach. And through the spirit, let my people receive. We ask these things now in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. 
So chameleons are something that I've, I've kind of always been fascinated by. By the way, isn't that beautiful? Like, if a lizard can be pretty, Megan, like, that's a pretty lizard. My wife absolutely hates lizards. It's like her phobia. And, and so if, if a lizard can be pretty, this is a pretty one. I've always kind of been fascinated by chameleons, though, because chameleons are able to adapt so that they can optimize in whatever circumstance they are their survival, Right? I actually didn't know this, but it's more than just color. Like we know if a chameleon is on something green, the right species of a chameleon can turn green. If it's on something brown, it can turn brown so that it adapts and it camouflages itself. But not only that, but being a cold-blooded reptile, a chameleon can actually adjust the hue of its color so that it can either absorb more sun or reflect more sun depending on if it's cold or if it's hot. And so a chameleon has an innate God-given ability to adapt and optimize whatever circumstances that it finds itself in. It's able to blend in and make that circumstance work for it. It's able to adapt itself so that it is able to blend in with its environment to the best of its ability. And most of us are a lot like that, aren't we? That over the years, we grow this innate ability about us so that we're able to, to optimize the relationships that we find ourselves in. So that we're able to blend in to whatever particular environment we find ourselves. We, we change our face and we change our language and we change our humor and we change our presentation and we change how properly we talk or, or how improperly we talk. We, we change our attitude based upon the environment that we find ourselves in. It's not, un, it's not unusual for a person to be one person at work and another person at home and another person at church and another person at ball field. We become chameleons. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so common for married couples to come and sit down with me and believe that they don't know one another. Because they don't. That we've become so adjusted to uh, adapting to our circumstances and changing ourselves so that we might optimize every relationship and optimize every environment that we don't know how to turn it off anymore. And so we come home and we're still doing the same thing. I have to put my best face on. I have to put my best foot forward. I have to make sure that you only see the best part of me, the part of me that I approve of, the part of me that I'm comfortable with, the part of me that I like, and the rest, all of the fears that I have and all of the anxieties that I have and all of the insufficiencies that I have and all of the weaknesses that I have, I'm going to hold those close to the vest so that you don't see those because if you saw that stuff, you wouldn't love me. You wouldn't like me. And so you end up five years in, 10 years in, 15 years in to a marriage and you don't actually feel love because the relationship has been superficial from the start. And you have in the back of your mind, if they actually knew who I was, they actually knew what I've done, they actually knew what I thought, this marriage would have been over a long time ago. And as the years go on, that stuff gets buried deeper and deeper. But there's something else that happens. Not only do we make sure that we put our best foot forward, leading to a superficial relationship, but we actually project onto the other person and we compel them to do the same thing. We expect the people in our lives to be who we want them to be. Who we expect them to be. We expect them to not have the weaknesses that we're uncomfortable with. 
We expect them not to struggle with the besetting sins that, that bother us the most or maybe that we struggle least with. And so what we end up is a whole bunch of people walking on eggshells all the time, not really knowing anyone and not really ever being known. And my experience personally and congregationally is that we do the very same thing with our relationship with God. That we believe that we can camouflage ourselves with religious exercises and flowery prayer language and that somehow by putting our best face on, by putting our best, face, our best foot forward and adapting to what we believe is another relationship in our lives that we have to optimize ourselves for, the relationship that we have with the living God, that somehow God will look down and he will approve of us because of the language that we use and the activities that we have that God will become more comfortable with us. And so we, we change ourselves in the moments, whether it's at church on Sunday, or maybe it's even in our devotional time or our prayer life, we begin to adapt ourselves to that circumstance so that then God will approve of us there too. But it doesn't stop there. Especially now in the enlightened postmodern world. It's not just that we change ourselves to be who we think God wants us to be. It's that we expect God to be who we want him to be. We have expectations of God. We have expectations of, of how he responds to sin. We have expectations of how he responds to disobedience. We have expectations of what he'll be okay with and what he won't be okay with. But here's the thing. God will not settle for a superficial relationship with you. God will not settle for a superficial relationship. God already knows you without your face on. God already knows you without the flowery prayer language. God already knows you in all of your imperfection and all of your weaknesses and all of your struggles and all of your besetting sins. God, God already knows all of those things. But God is also unwilling to adapt to who you want him to be. In fact, what I would tell us, brothers and sisters, is that the real hope that we have, the real good news that is available to us, the real joy that is being offered to us through Christ is that we sinners can live in relationship with a holy God as he really is. We can know him as he really is, as he truly intends to be known, and we can know him in a way that is far greater than any of our imaginations can compute. But how does that reconcile, right? How does that reconcile? That's the good news. What I want us to see this morning is how it is that we relate to God. How it is that we relate to God. First of all, I want you to see that there are no casual relationships with a holy God. There are no casual relationships with a holy God. When we come to 1 Chronicles chapter 13, what we see is David is bringing some much needed reform to Israel. Okay, so during the time of Saul, Saul showed himself very often to be a very prideful man, to be a naive man, to be a foolish man. And so he would often rebuff the counsel that was brought to him. And so what we see right out of the gate in those first four verses is immediately David is doing the inverse of that. He's going to the elders of Israel and he's asking for their wisdom and he's asking for their counsel. And he's saying, this is what I think we ought to do. This is where I think we ought to go. Do you all agree? And so you see David reversing those policies of Saul. But more importantly than listening to the counsel of the elders, what we see is David reversing the relationship that he and Israel were to have with the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark that represented the very presence of God in the midst of his people. It says there in verse 4, I believe, that, or I'm sorry, in verse 
uh, verse 3. It says, Then let us bring the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. And so what, God, what David is saying is that we need to reverse the relationship that we've had with the covenant God, with the ark that has come. Now, what you have to understand, if you'll look at there in verse 6, it says at the end of verse 6, that which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above, above the cherubim. Now, I have a picture of the ark here, and what he's talking about is this area right here. This was considered the throne of God among Israel. And so you had the ark that would have been there in the midst of the Holy of Holies, and you have two cherubim. One right there, one right there. And you'll notice that they're face down, facing one another. They're, they're feathers up. They're shielding their faces, the idea there, from the glory of God. They're shielding their face because they're showing that, that no one is able to look upon the radiance of God's glory and the radiance of God's, of God's holiness. And so the concept of the ark is not that the ark is some superstitious piece of furniture. That's how it had been treated in the days of Saul. The concept is, is that here... Is a throne. And upon the throne sits not a man, not Saul, not David. Upon the throne sits the Lord. The Lord is the ruler over Israel. The Lord is the king of his people. But in the time of Saul, it had fallen upon hard times. You'll look back and you'll see where it's at. It says, that is, Kiriath Jerim. Kiriath Dream. So what we have is rather than being revered as the throne of God, we have the Ark of the Covenant meant to represent the prosperity of the people and the protection of the people and the defense of the people and the consecration, set-apartness of the people, the holiness of the people. And it is in an obscure town with an obscure family collecting dust. That it's just in some house on the outskirts of town and over the last 20 years it's just been there Collecting us. So how did it get there to begin with? That brings us back to this picture that I have. You'll notice over here in the, in the, uh, in the, in the outer edges that there is a, a toppled statue-looking thing. That is Dagon, the, the, the uh, patron god of the Philistines. So the Philistines, you'll, you'll read about this in 1 Samuel 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Uh, if you go and you read that, what you find is the Philistines actually come against Saul and they conquer Saul. And they come, and remember, in their minds, every war is a holy war. It's always a battle among the gods. It's whose God is greatest. And so when the Philistines triumph over Israel because of, of Saul and Israel's unfaithfulness, they go and they seize the Ark of the Covenant. And it says that they build a new cart and they transport the Ark into the Temple of Dagon. And the idea there is to show that the Ark of the Covenant, that Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, is subservient to Dagon, that Dagon has triumphed triumphed over the God of Israel and enabled the Philistines to conquer the people of Israel. Well, they, they put the ark in there and look, they think it's just furniture, y'all. They were thinking like Saul thought. They thought it was just a chest. They thought it was just a, a memory box filled with grandma's blankets and dishes at the end of the bed, right? And so they go and they, they roll this chest. And you can imagine what they're thinking. Like, what kind of God is a chest? You know what I'm saying? Like, like we've got a guy with, a, with horns. Like, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, what are they going to come against us with a chest for? So they roll the chest in there. And then they come back into the temple the next day. And you know what's happened? Dagon's been toppled over. Not a soul has been in the temple. 
certainly not an Israelite, a Jewish person that would have wanted to have done it. They come into the temple and Dagon has been toppled over and he has been decapitated and all of his limbs have been removed. And there he is just laying beneath the chest, totally dismembered, nothing but a torso. They knew enough to know this is not a God to be trifled with. And so they began like a hot potato, throwing this thing all around the Philistines. And wherever the ark went among the Philistines, uh, plagues of of mice and tumors would would break out. And so they would throw it from one town to the next town, one town to the next town, wanting to make sure that they were protected from whatever this was that was going on. And ultimately what they decide is this thing's got to go back to Israel. We can't handle it. And they take and they make tumors and mice made out of gold and they bring the the Ark of the Covenant back over to Israel and they make an offering to Yahweh showing greater reverence for the Ark than the very people of God themselves. And it ends up in the house of a man by the name of Abinadab where it just collects dust off in the corner without a vent for 20 years, two decades. And over the course of that time, Saul falls on his own sword and and David is elevated to become the new king of Israel. And so what David says is, go and get the ark. I will not bear this kingdom on my own shoulders. I will not lead you with my own wisdom. I will not go by my own strength. Bring the ark back to the center of Israel. Bring the ark back to the holy of holies. Let the Lord bear the weight of his people. Let the Lord protect his people. Let the Lord protect provide for his people. Now, you'll notice the way that it tra- they transport it. It says in verse 7, and they carried the ark of, of God on a new cart. On a new cart. Now, what did I, how did I say the Philistines carried the ark? On a new cart. This, in fact, is not how Israel was supposed to carry the ark. So immediately, even though we see some sincerity in David and we see David doing some good things and they likely built a new car out of some kind of reverence for the ark, they're walking in disobedience to the way that God has said the ark is to be handled. That already they're showing that over the last two decades, because the ark has been out of sight, out of mind, because the ark has been collecting dust in the house of Abinadab, that maybe all of a sudden it's out of their memory and, and they've forgotten the reverence with which they're to treat this, this ark. And so they, they, don't, they don't observe the way that the Lord has taught. You see, if you'll, if you'll read in Exodus chapter 25, you'll, you'll see right here that there were rings on either side of the ark of the covenant. And it was only supposed to be one tribe, the tribe of Levi. In fact, it was only supposed to be one clan within the tribe of Levi, the, the Kohathites. And they were supposed to live their entire lives doing nothing but preparing themselves to transport the ark. And so they would take these two poles and run them through the rings and then they would carry it. Because God said, if you touch the ark, you shall surely die. If you touch the ark, you shall surely die. So you have to take great precautions and go to great lengths to make sure that you do not touch the ark. Because if you touch the ark, I'm telling you, I'm giving you my word, you will surely die. And so they were to take these poles and run it through. But you know, this thing was 10 miles outside of the city of David. 10 miles. And you, probably, you can probably hear them in their minds thinking, you know, 
That's well and good for a hike across town. That's well and good when you're moving the ark from one hall to another hall, from one side of, a, of the church to the other side of the church. But 10 miles? 10 miles? Are you serious? We have to carry this thing on poles for 10 miles? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, let's build a new car. Let's build a fancy car. Let's build a really nice car. Let's, let's have, like, the nicest Kubota tractor pulling the nicest trailer that you can pull. I mean, like, like, let's get it down right. And let's just put it in there. And surely, surely all of that will make sense. Like, surely all of that will be, be okay. Now, why is it, why is it, that they weren't able to touch the ark. Why is it that touching the ark would strike them dead? Because God is holy. Because God is holy. Because the ark represented the presence of a holy God. And the intent is to show that that you, you, as an unholy people, cannot lay hands upon the holiness of God and survive it. That the holiness of God is potent. The holiness of God will extinguish sinners in His presence. The holiness of God is so far above, so transcendent above all that that man can do and man has done. that We cannot lay our hands upon it. The word holiness, it means separateness. It means separateness. It means, it's the word, in other words, that we use to describe those parts of God that we really have no vocabulary to articulate. It speaks of God's transcendence. It speaks of his purity. It speaks of his sovereignty. It speaks of his majesty. You take all of the the attributes of God and all of the characteristics of God and all of the descriptions of God and you bring them together into one word and the only word that we can come up with in the English language is the word holy. It is that God is indescribable. It is that he is unmatchable, inexpressible. And do you know what word is the only word that is used in Hebrew three different times. Do you, you remember in Hebrew how we, we've talked in the past about how there, there's not exclamation points, right? You, you don't write in all caps to emphasize something and underline it and put an exclamation points. They don't have that kind of punctuation. That the, the way that they would emphasize something is they would say it multiple times. And if they repeated a word three times, that was like putting 16 exclamation points at the end of it. It's like, it's like saying it is, this is true in the nth degree. This is, this, is infinitely tr- this is infinitely so. This is all caps, underlined, 16 exclamation points, true, right? There's only one word that is used to describe God you, that is repeated three times in succession like that. And do you know what it is? It's holy. And it's the, it's the song of heaven. In Isaiah chapter 6, when, when God gives Isaiah the vision of heaven and peels back the floor and allows him to glimpse, just, just a, a, a glimpse of what's happening in the throne right now, it says this, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That when Isaiah looked up and he saw the cherubim, the cherubim are there and with their wings, they're, they're shielding their eyes from the radiance of God's glory. They're covering their feet. You remember when, when Moses was, was before God in the, in the burning bush, you remember what he said, take off your sandals because your, your feet are on holy ground. They're covering the shame of their feet and the shame of their sin and they're covering their eyes, deflecting the glory of God as they fly with the other two. And the idea here is that here is one who is inexpressible. Here is one who is unmatchable. Here is one that is, in, that is indescribable. And if we were to come into his eyes without shielded vision, it would extinguish us on the spot. 
You'll see what is Isaiah's response. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. Your, your translation may say, I am ruined, or I am undone. That for a human being to come into the presence of the holiness of God is to literally be unraveled by his greatness. To be unraveled by his purity. To be unraveled and, un, and, and, and ruined by his glory. Isaiah looks up and he says, who am I to be in the presence of one so great? Who am I to be able to survive a, a, a holiness so potent as this? In fact, this was so true. A tradition developed among the Jews over time. Only one day of the year on the Day of Atonement, only one man, the, the high priest, could go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant dwell. And if they did not follow to the letter exactly what, what God had said and, and made sure that they had purified themselves and cleaned themselves, then the holiness of God would, would bring judgment upon them and they would die there on the spot. And it became so common that high priests would come into the presence of God in an impure, disobedient, rebellious spirit that they began to tie a scarlet rope around the waist of the high priest so that if the high priest died, they could drag him out without entering the, holiness, the presence of God's holiness themselves. Oh, brothers and sisters, we have no concept of the holiness of God these days. We have no concept of the transcendence of God of the greatness of God, of the splendor of God. We have no fear of God anymore among us. But brothers and sisters, if we look upon the truth of who God is and we realize that he is holy, 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 high and lifted up, indescribable and matchless, inexpressibly glorious, then what we will recognize is that we do not belong in his presence. All of this has to be understood before you can understand what is happening in 1 Chronicles chapter 13. Because when we read what happens to Uzzah, it almost seems unjust to us, doesn't it? It almost seems unjust that God would kill a man. But think about the picture. Here is the Ark of the Covenant, and it's being treated casually. Here's the Ark of the Covenant. They've, they've disregarded the instructions that God has given. And Uzzah, the son of Abinadab, is most likely a Kohathite. So it was his responsibility to learn exactly how it was that the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be, learned, was supposed to be transported. And they're on a cart that they never should have been in. Headed into town, treating the Ark of the Covenant like it's no big deal. And it's being drugged by oxen, by a couple of animals. Not, not carried by the right men, drugged by oxen. Oxen who have no concept of the greatness of God. Oxen who are not in covenant relationship with God. Oxen who have not experienced the blessings of God and the provisions of God and the protection of God. Oxen that, that have not witnessed God crush the walls of Jericho or part the Red Sea. Oxen that have not eaten the bread that has fallen out of the sky or drank the water that's poured out of the, out of the rock. Oxen. And the oxen stumbles. And the ark begins to tumble and the ark begins to wave. And you can just imagine, it probably was a reaction. It probably wasn't even uh, with, with a, 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 a cognizant thought. He reaches up to steady the ark. And when he reaches up to steady the ark, there is nothing left but a pair of smoking sandals. He's gone. 
exterminated on the spot. We look at that and we think, God, how could you? Like David. God, how could you? Who do you think you are? And God is saying, I am exactly who I said I am. And I did exactly what I said I would do. And I brought judgment against those who did not revere my holiness. I brought judgment against those who did not take seriously my my holiness. You see, what, what Uzzah did is he treated as common what God had declared to be holy. See, here's the thought. Jonathan Edwards points this out in one of his sermons. Uzzah thought that by touching the ark, he was protecting the ark from being polluted by the ground. He thought that by, by steadying the ark, he was keeping it from getting dirty by crashing to the ground. That is, Uzzah believed that the ground was more of a pollutant than he was. But the ground has never pla- blasphemed the living God. The ground has never defied the living God. The creation marches to the orders of the almighty, sovereign God of the universe. The sun rises when God tells it to rise. And the sun sets when God tells it to set. The ocean stops exactly where God tells it to stop. The rain comes whenever God tells it to come. No, it's humans. It's mankind. It's you and me that disobeys and rebels against the living God. It's you and me that blasphemes God and tries to reinvent him into something that we want him to be and we desire him to be rather than who he actually is. It is us that attempts to to steal from his glory and diminish his holiness. That's us. No, the ground was far cleaner than Uzzah was. The ground was far purer than Uzzah was. But Uzzah reached up casually, just just putting his hand against the ark like it was no big deal, like it was another stumbling sinner that he could help settle and steady his feet. Oh, but brothers and sisters, Uzzah teaches us something, that you don't stroll, sinners don't stroll into the presence of a holy God. Sinners don't strut into the presence of a holy God. Right now, we may live and we may, we may, We may laugh at what God has said and laugh at what God has done. Right now, we may scoff that we are answerable to anyone. We may scoff at the idea of judgment. We may scoff at the idea that that there is one that is greater than us to whom we will answer one day. We may scoff at all of that. But brothers and sisters, you will not strut before the presence of an almighty and holy God. One day, there will be an accounting that comes. A day of reckoning. See, what happens with Uzzah is that Uzzah became too familiar with the presence of God. I need you to listen to me right here. Uzzah became too familiar with the presence of the living God. He became too comfortable with the presence of the living God. Imagine, he, he is the son of Abinadab. And so here is Abinadab having in his house there the the Ark of the Covenant. And you can imagine, it was just over there at the end of the bed or over there in the corner. It's not like they lived in mansions, right? So just over there in the corner is a chest, a a chest that's, that's always been there, a chest that's just collecting dust. And probably for 20 years, it was uneventful. No big deal. 
there in his own house, there in his own house was the represented presence of the living God, one who had, who had said that you, you, will, you will follow me and I will deliver you and I will, I will triumph over your enemies and if you obey me, I will prosper. If you disobey me, there will be curses upon your house. That God is right there in his house. And Uzzah grows comfortable with it. He grows used to it. It reminds me of a story when I was uh, on a safari in Africa. I get to go on a safari a few different times when I've been on mission trips and, and things like that in Africa. And we were in uh, Kruger National Park, and we were on, and we had went, and we were able to get within like six feet of a full mane lion, male lion. Now that will send chills down your spine, my friends. Let me just tell you. Okay, you're there, and by the way, you're in an open-air vehicle, okay? And I'm sitting there, and I'm feeling so vulnerable because I'm like, this thing could just literally jump up on the top, back of this Land Rover and just take every single one of us out, you know? And so you're there, and then the, what, what makes the situation compounded is all these other guides and all these other vehicles, they come, and they begin to surround you, and they, they press in, and they block you where you can't escape. And so the, the lion and the lioness are literally just like right there on the side of the road. We're up against it, and everybody else is all up against it. And I'm like, if this lion decides he's having a bad day, we're all having a bad day. You know what I'm saying? And so we're there for, for a long time, and we're just observing the lion and watching the lion. And uh, eventually we, we begin to go. And so I, I decide I need to talk to my God about the situation as it just came up because I think he's going to comfort me, right? And so I asked the God, I said, so, so do you guys ever, like, have anybody that is attacked? And I'm expecting him to say, oh, no, 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 no. We do this all the time. It's really, it's really not a big deal. It's more in your head than it is reality. And you know what he said? Oh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> oh, yeah, all the time. I thought, well, that's super. Thank you. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad we got as close as we possibly could, friend. Thank you very much. And he started telling me a story about something that had happened just a week or two prior to us coming. He said that one of the guides would, would go and they would take the, the group of, of tourists or whatever on the, on the same route every single time. And he said that the guy decided that he had one particular place that he would go and he liked to go there and smoke a cigarette. And so he got to where he would do it every single day at the same exact place. He would go, he would part the, he would part the truck, and, and he would get out, and he would lean up against the same rock, and he would smoke a cigarette. Well, over a period of months, he does this. And one day, he, he following his normal routine, he goes up, and this literally had just happened before we got there. And he said, while he's sitting there smoking his cigarette, a leopard comes up from behind him and takes his claws and disembowels him. He said the le leopard had been stalking him. The leopard had been watching him the whole time. And he said this leopard is on top of, of this man, this guy, and the only way they could get him off was to run over the man and the leopard too with the truck. And this is what the guy said. I'll never forget this. He said, people get too comfortable with him. They think that they're tame. Oh, brothers and sisters, we have wallpaper in our nursery filled with Noah the story of God's judgment upon the earth. As children, we colored coloring pages of the cross. Crosses are symbols we hang around our neck and ta tattoo on our arms. We've grown so accustomed to hearing the story of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus and the judgment of God upon Jesus and the forgiveness that is offered to all of us as sinners that we roll our eyes
doesn't pay it no mind at all. But I am here to tell you this morning that God is not tamed. God is not tamed. I wonder, have you grown accustomed? Have you grown comfortable with the presence of a holy God? Have you grown comfortable with who he is and who he's revealed himself to be? Have you grown tired and bored of the old story that is still the story that is being told today that God is high and lifted up and you have sinned against him and you are separated from him and you are answerable to him? Because I'm here to tell you this morning that the only difference between me and you and Uzzah is that there's still time for us to repent. There's still time for us to turn away from our sin and turn toward the Lord and to to offer ourselves fully and wholly unto Him as a living sacrifice, that which He actually receives as, as pleasing and holy worship unto Himself. See, God's presence is only enjoyed on God's terms. God's presence is only enjoyed, and I want to emphasize the word enjoyed, on God's terms. David responds, and David is angry. He's angry. That is, David is a postmodern. That's what I say. David would fit in great with millennials, right? And I am one, so I get to say that. Like, like, he would hang out well with us because he sees God do exactly what God said that he would do. He sees God reveal himself exactly as God said that he was. And David's reaction is anger with God. Distaste of God. How could God be so ruthless? How could God be so graceless? How could God be so merciless? How could God be who he said he was? So David is angry that God has done what he's done and that he's, he's, uh, he's followed through on exactly what he said that he would do. He's, he's angry that God is not a God of idle threats. He's angry that God is not a God that, that says that one thing and then does something else. He's angry that God is holy. He's angry that God is just. He's angry that God is truthful. He's angry and he's afraid. He's not a fool. He's angry, but he's not a fool. He recognizes that, that he has vastly un, uh, underestimated the situation and, the, and the, the dire necessity of what it means to have a holy God at the center of their camp, at the center of Israel, reigning upon the throne, the Ark of the Covenant. That David, sincere as he was, actually revealed rebellion in his own heart because he had not consulted the word of God. He had overseen this operation and he had let them load it on the cart. He had let them drag it with oxen. He had let them disobey the scriptures and he was the leader. He had bore responsibility here. And so he's afraid. And so what it says is that David sends it to the household of Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom is a Gittite. Do you know what a Gittite is? This comes up again and again, and it's so fast. This is why you, you have to, the, the Old Testament is meant to be interpreted in light of a map, okay? That, that theologically, it teaches through geography. The, the Gittite is a man from Gath. Do you remember who's from Gath? Goliath is from Gath. So this man is an uncircumcised Philistine. 
This is a man who's supposed to have God's judgment against him by birth, by nature, but from, from the beginning. He is not a Jew. And God t- uh, David sends the Ark of the Covenant to be protected by Obed-Edom, it, the man who is a descendant or a relative of Goliath. And how are you expecting this story to go? You're expecting God to go scorched earth here, aren't you? That's what I would expect. I would expect that at this point, God's going to go scorched earth and he's going to burn this thing to the ground. Except, you know what it says? The Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom. The Lord blessed the house of this Gittite, this uncircumcised Philistine that ought to have the judgment of God against him, that ought to have the oppression of God against him, that ought to have all of this. That is, that this Obed Edomite, the Gittite, experiences shocking grace. And through him, what God is doing is he's inviting David to come back. No, 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 David. The purpose of my presence among Israel is not judgment. The purpose of my presence among Israel is the blessing of Israel. The purpose of my presence among Israel is the prosperity of Israel. The purpose of my presence among Israel is the defense and the protection of Israel. It's the joy of Israel. That the purpose of God's presence in the lives of his people is the joy of his people. If, if you go to God on his terms and not your terms. That what we see here is that God's presence isn't just meant for the fear of his people. God's presence is is meant for the joy of his people. But the difference is, is whether or not you go to God on your terms, by your good works, by all the things that you do, by what you think is right, by, by your own logic, by your own rationale, by what makes sense to you, by what feels good to you, by what feels right to you. Or if you go to God by what he has said, by what he has declared, by his gate, by his path. So you have to enter God's presence through the exact gate and the exact path that he has prescribed. He had told them how to transport the ark. He had told them how to handle the ark, but they had disregarded what God was said and they had decided that they would do it their way anyway. How many times? Do you think of God's word and hear God's word and think, I just disagree with that. I'm of a different opinion. I think there's a better way. I think there's a different way. I think there's a more loving way. I think there's a more exciting way. God isn't interested in your opinion. God isn't interested in your opinion. God isn't interested in what you want him to be or who you say that he is. God says, I am, I am, I am that I am. And you will approach me and enter into a relationship with me and and thrive in a relationship with me only when you come to me my way, through my gate, through my path. And that is why Jesus says, I am the gate, I am the way. All who enter through me shall not find death, but eternal life. See, there's good news for you, brothers and sisters. No, sinners, we can't withstand the holiness of God. We can't stand in it. 
That's why Jesus came. Jesus came so that you, before a holy God, wouldn't be a sinner. Jesus came so that you wouldn't even be morally neutral. Jesus came so that you, despite all of the immorality in your life, all of the bad attitudes in your life, all of the poor motives in your life, all of the the actions, all of the history, all of the past, all of the baggage, all of the problems, Jesus came so that you might be declared holy. Holy. You. Me. Holy. Listen to what it says. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He made him who was holy to be as though he was Uzzah. And Jesus came and just like Uzzah died under the wrath of God, according to the justice of God, Jesus, the one who was the God-man, who was perfectly innocent, died under the wrath of God, by the judgment of God, as though he himself were a sinner. But it doesn't stop there. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become what? Morally neutral? No. A little bit better? No. So that we can perform at a little bit higher rate? No. So that we might become what we are already, not naturally, the righteousness of God. That we might be holy. You and me, with all of our problems, holy, holy, holy. That's us in the eyes of the living God. So I have one question this morning. Have you entered the gate? Have you entered the narrow gate? Have you stopped for the flowery prayer language? Have you stopped for the religious exercises? Have you stopped trying harder and working better and and doing more? Have Have you stopped trying to reform your life so that you're a better person and just said, Jesus, I have to have you. I need you and you alone. Have you banked all of your hope and all of your life and all that you will be and all that you will do upon Christ? Christ. God is not tamed. Oh, but brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, God is not inaccessible either. He has made a way. Will you come? Will you come? Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.